with gratitude, prayer, and blessings. Live from Jerusalem, this is General Ike, Building Jerusalem. My guest today is Professor Josef Garfinkel. Professor Garfinkel is Professor of Prehistoric Archaeology and Archaeology of the Biblical Period at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. He's a curator of the Museum of Yarmoukian Culture at Kibbutz Shar Golan and has written extensively on ancient architecture, farming, pottery, art, religion, and dance. He's also right at the center of one of the most interesting and exciting questions in uh, biblical archaeology today, the questions surrounding the Davidic monarchy. Uh, Professor Garfinkel, thank you so much for meeting with me today. Sure, it's my pleasure. Welcome to the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. In 2007, you began excavation at uh, Kirbet Kayafa. What was the state of uh, the understanding in biblical archaeology at the time? At the time and also today, there are big questions about King David. We know so much about King David from the biblical tradition. But when you look at this period from a archaeological point of view, we really almost knowing nothing. If you look at Jerusalem, even the area which is called City of David, you cannot prove that even one stone is from the time of David. Maybe there are millions of stones from the time of David, but we cannot prove it. It's not possible to show and say, this is from the time of David 100%, or this is from the time of David. And the same situation appears in all other sites in Judah, like in Lachish and Beersheba and Arad, and other sites that has been excavated over the years. So people start wondering, where is David? Why uh, don't we find anything from the time of David? And people start in the early 1980s, or since then, people start saying, David never existed. David is a mythological figure. David and Solomon never existed. There was no uh, capital city in Jerusalem in the 10th century BC. A temple was not built in Jerusalem, and so on and so forth. Very radical opinions have been developed uh, because no archaeological uh, evidence were found. And now you want to know how did I change the picture. <coughs> I came to Kribet Kayafa in 2007 because a student of mine, Sargano, invited me to see the place. Sargano was working at the Israel Antiquity Authority at the time, and also today, but uh, at that time he was responsible for the area of Kirbet Kayafa. And he visited the place many times, and he understood the importance of the place. Because even without any excavations, you can see a very strong city wall, and the location, Kirbet Kayafa is, is overlooking the valley of Elah. So where is that? Geographically speaking, <clears throat> the Valley of Elah, this is where David and Goliath is fighting, you know, according to the biblical tradition. It is about 30 kilometers uh, southwest of Jerusalem. It's south of Beth Shemesh. And when you arrived at Kibbeh Kiafa, what was visible? What could you already see? We saw a very nice circle, which was a city wall encircling the top of the mount. Mm -hmm. But we have no idea what is the dating of this city wall. And nobody believed and nobody was dreaming even about anything from the 10th century BC. But when I stood on the cliff looking at the valley of Elah 
And I knew that this is the border between Judah and Philistia, and it's also the main road leading from the port of Ashkelon and Ashdod into the hill country to uh, Hebron and Bethlehem and Jerusalem. So it was clear that the place has very strong geopolitical importance. So I decided that it's worth excavating them. And in the year 2007, we came only for uh, 10 days with a few people, and we make a small test. And in the test, it, came, it became clear that we have an Iron Age city built on bedrock, and we have a destruction level because on the floor we discovered complete vessels. So decided we're going to continue excavating them. Sorry, you discovered complete vessels and therefore... On the floor. Right. It means that the city was suddenly destroyed. In archaeology, you have few different... How is, it, how is settlement coming to its end? Mm-hmm. Sometimes people decided we don't want to live here anymore. We don't have good water. We don't have good, uh, I don't know, agriculture here. So they simply go away. And when they go away, they're taking all the belongings with them. Mm-hmm. So what will be left for the archaeologist? Almost nothing. But if you have a city that an enemy suddenly came and destroyed it, what's happened? You discover thousands and thousands of artifacts in the destroyed city. And when we excavated Ribet Kayafa and we have complete vessels on the floors, on the floors of the houses, it's there, it's, uh, it was a good indication from an archaeological point of view. For the people who lived there in antiquity, it was a disaster. But for the archaeologists, it's like a gold mine. Right. So, so that indicated to you that Kirbet Kiafa was... Suddenly destroyed, and it's a very rich site. But we didn't know yet what is the dating, if it was 10th century or 9th century or even maybe 8th century BC, because the sample that we excavated was very small. And this, the, the question of whether it's 10th or 9th or 8th century is very important to the question of, of David. association. David, David is early 10th century BC. Anyhow, so in 2008, we came already for six weeks with a large group of people, and we excavated week after week, and we discovered a city, wall, and a gate, and houses, and even an inscription, and a lot of pottery and metal objects, and the site was very rich. And then we also discovered olive pits, burnt olive pits. And these burnt olive pits are the most important things in the excavation. Why? Because we send them for dating. There's a whole method, physical um, method, called ra- carbon-14. I'm sorry, could I interrupt you there for a second? Sure. Did you say olive pits? Yes, olive pits. You know, when you, have an, when you are eating an olive, what do you have? The inside. The pit at the center of an olive. Yes, exactly. Okay. There are olive pits. And we discovered burnt olive pits in the site of Hirbet Kayafa. And these olive pits were sent to Oxford University for testing. <coughs> they, have a special, they, have a good, they have a very good laboratory that checking the isotope of carbon in a sample. In organic sample, you have carbon. And carbon isotope, you have 14, 13, and 12. And the 14 is not stable. And every 5,700 years, you lose half of it. And after another 5,700 years, you have only a quarter. And then one eighth, and one sixth, one sixteenth, and so on and so forth. And by measuring a sample and see the relationship, the quantity of carbon 14 and carbon 12, you can tell the dating. You can say if this thing is 1,000 years old, or 5,000 years old, or 20,000 years old. Okay? And what was the dating of Hirbet Kayaf according to, to the olive pits? 1,000 BC. Wow. So, what do we have? We have a city, not a village, a fortified city, with inscriptions, with administration, with writing, 
And what is the dating? King David. This was the first archaeological evidence for the kingdom of Judah in the time of David. And that moment, we have a full page in the New York Times, and National Geographic, and BBC, and CNN, and all the newspapers and television in the world kept on writing about Rebbe Kayafa, season after season after season. People were asking me, who make, who make for you such wonderful PR? And I said, King David. <laughs> <laughs> the, the olive pits were uh, one of the clue, early clues or one of the bits of evidence that you followed. Uh, but there were, there were many others. Something that I, I discovered when looking into this was that the walls uh, also formed part of houses, if I understand correctly. So that, that shows a level of urban planning which isn't concordant with uh, Phoenician and Canaanite construction at the time. The urban planning of, of Rebbe Kayafa is, is of great interest because it was really it's, uh, something very pure. It's like, for example, Nahalal, <coughs> you know, the village of Nahalal, Moshav Nahalal in the Israel, in the Jizal Valley. When it was built, it was built as a perfect circle and every house has the fields behind it. And if you have aerial photograph of Nahalal, you'll see a perfectly organized village with houses and farming fields around it in a circle, something very unique. And this pattern can be created only when it's planned ahead. Right. You cannot have one building here, one here, a third one here, and suddenly you have a pattern. Mm-hmm. In Kribit Kaffin, we have a very clear pattern. We have the city wall. The city wall has kasmat. It's not solid wall. It's a wall which has rooms inside it. And then the rooms inside the city wall and houses abutting each other. And this pattern is known today in five sites. And all these sites are located in Judah. The five sites is Tel Nats Benir Amala, Bet Shemesh, then Chirbet Kayafa, then a site called Tel Bet Mirsim, and the fifth one is Be'er Sheva. So this is a typical Judean urban planning. It was not found in any Canaanite site. It was not found in any Philistine site. And it was not found in any uh, city in the kingdom of Israel. Okay. Only in Judah. Could I, could I just for the people at home who are hearing this but don't have the, um, the pleasure of seeing it. I, behind you now is, is a big uh, photograph of Kirbat Kayafa. So I can kind of see from here what you're talking about. So let me just describe this for the people back home. Sure. There's a, the wall of the city is, is very near uh, circular. And, and coming out from the walls themselves are uh, sort of sub, subdividing walls perpendicular to the main city wall and those form individual house, houses apparently and in order for that sort of thing to arise you've really got to plan it in advance and that only really happens so far as we know in the kingdom of Judah. Mm-hmm. I mean this type of urban planning, the case with city walls and houses abutting each other is known only in five sites and all of them are in Judah. Wow. Now, what is the Kasmat city wall? Remember the story about Jericho? When Joshua and the spies coming to Jericho and they stay with Rahav? Mm-hmm. And what is the story about Rahav? It said, Ki beita bachoma, hu bekir hachoma hi yoshevet. Which means she is dwelling, her house is inside the city wall, and inside the city wall she is dwelling. This is from the so, book of Joshua. Yes, yeah, so the book of Joshua describes a Kasmat city wall. Wow. Because if the city wall is solid, people cannot live inside. You can only live inside the city wall when the city wall is hollow, when you have casement in the city wall. So a casement refers to the like the hollowness in the city in the city yeah. walls that allows for houses to be built in it? 
This is the city wall here. You see the outer wall, you see the inside, and you see a room here, and another room, 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 and another one. They're all inside the city wall. If we're to take the verse in, in uh, the book of Joshua at its, at its face value, does that mean that there were cities um, before, before the conquest that, were, that had casement walls and of this kind? No, I don't think so, because we never found city walls like this in any Canaanite city. It's only telling you that when people described Jericho, they described it like cities they knew from their time. Right. So city in their time, in the Iron Age, is Kazmit city wall, but not Canaanite. So as, the, as you were in uh, Kibrat Kiafa digging, I mean, that initial 10-day dig uh, proved very valuable. You were there for another seven years. Mm-hmm. Uh, you must have discovered a, a huge amount of revolutionary things then. We excavated about 20% of the city, and we have uh, 60 rooms and about 10 houses. And we also have a gate and another gate. So we have two gates. And near each gate, we have a large gate piazza. And then in the center of the site, we have the remains of a large palace. And in another part of the city, we, discard, we uncovered a storage room. So when the, the kingdom collected the tax, they need to keep them somewhere. Sure. So it's telling you know, the administration aspect and the dwelling and the city wall and the, and the gate and everything is on the border in the Ela Valley, the main route, you can understand that this is really a place where the kingdom built a stronghold to protect its border. I, I don't really understand archaeology that well, uh, obviously, certainly not compared to you. Could you explain how, how do you know that it's a storage room as opposed to a room for anything else? Regular houses, you, have an, you are entering into a courtyard, and then around the courtyard you have various rooms, and in every room a family or part of a family can uh, dwell. And then you find cooking installation and uh, various uh, objects that people are using in daily life. When you have a storage building, it has a total different type of architecture. It's like a, it's a magazine. So it's, uh, it's, it's long and narrow, and you have row of pillars, two rows of pillars side dividing, subdividing the building into three units. So this is not a place where people can live. People need rooms to live, you know. People don't live in a huge hall which is divided by pillars to three rows. So this is basically a different type of architecture. It's much larger, it's monumental, and it has very long, uh, strong pillars. So maybe it has two floors, but you don't have uh, dwelling conditions in this place. Right. These are buildings that are used for uh, storage. So it's kind of, it's, it's almost intuitive. Like even someone who didn't, who wasn't trained could, could walk into a room and see a stove in the corner and say, oh yeah, someone probably lives here. And they could walk into a different room and it's just a colossal hall with pillars through it and say, yeah, clearly this isn't... It's not a different room, room. it's a different building. Different kind of building altogether. It's a different building. What storage rooms like, storage storage, uh, buildings like this are known for maybe 20 different sites in Israel. And they're always different from the dwellings. This is not under debate. Fair. So you found these storage storage buildings, you found a a large palace at the center of the... Kirbat Kiafa. Mm-hmm. Could you tell us a bit about the palace? Usually, uh, dwelling houses of uh, private families are rather small, and also the walls are quite thin. And when you have a thin wall, it means that it was used for one floor or so. Right. And in the palace, first of all, it's huge. It's uh, 30 meters from one side to the other, so two times or three times bigger than the regular dwelling unit. And then also, the walls, they're not thin, they're very wide. They're three times wider than the walls of the private houses. 
So you can imagine that you have maybe two or three or four floors, one on top of the other. So it was, it was the most prominent building inside the city. First of all, it's in the highest place and the center. Then it was much higher and much bigger. And this really symbolized the power of the authority of the kingdom. This is the building where probably the head of the army of the regions lived and the head of you know, the mayor of the city. And this was the important place where all the decisions uh, took place. And people were, you know, if you live in the city, you put your hand to the higher place of the city and you see the big palace and you know who is the king. So that was a, it was a very imposing structure. It's imposing structure and, you know, people using architecture even today. Think about the twin building in New York, the trade, where the World Trade Center. Why two of the largest, tall, tallest buildings in the world were built in New York? To emphasize the American economy. And why they've been destroyed later? Because if somebody wants to go against the American hegemony, what he's doing is destroying the symbol. So even today, people using architecture also to convey political messages. And it was the same in antiquity. So you found all these houses in the casement walls. You found the storage, storage uh, buildings. You found the, this palace. And then what happened? What's happened? First of all, you know, the city of Bechemesh, 20, 30 years ago, it was a small city of maybe 25,000 people. And then they decided to enlarge it so it will become a place for a quarter of a million of people. They're making it 10, 10 times bigger. So the plan, the, work, the, the, the plan was to build all the way till Chirbet Kayafa. Not to build on top of the site, but to build up to 40, 50 meters from the site. This was the original plan. 20 years ago, before we start excavating. You know, nobody knew that it's such an important site. And once it became clear that this is a site of the time of King David, they decided to make a national park. And a neighborhood around Hibbet Kayafa, the planning has been canceled. And we managed to change, to reverse the original plan from neighborhood to make it a national park. Fantastic. That's great stuff. And then you took this, um, your work, and... Uh as you say, it was widely publicized when you originally uh, started excavating and had, and had these finds. What's, what's been the effect of your work uh, in the ongoing discussion since? But look, me, I have, of course, a lot of re a scientific responsibility to publish mm -hmm. all the results of our excavations. So far, we published uh, three books. Two more books are now in advanced stage, already in uh, English editing. So we completed the, the analysis and the writing. And after the editing, they will go to layout and then to printing. So I believe that in four or five months from now, we will have two more books. So this will be five books, and we need to publish three more. So it's enormous uh, amount of scientific uh, responsibility to publish the scientific results. But we also want to communicate with the public. And we published a popular book. It was uh, published in Hebrew a few years ago, and it's called Footsteps of King David in the Valley of Elah. And now Thames and Hudson, maybe you know it's a famous book publisher in England, they decided to publish the English translation of the book. It's also updated. And I hope that uh, they said that by March or so, the book will be published. Wow. In English, the English, English version of the book will be published. Then we discovered then a very interesting object which helped us to understand some of the biblical text that's relating to Solomon Palace and Temple. And we also published a popular book which called Solomon Temple and Palace in light, of in light of New Archaeological Discoveries. This is another story. 
And the third aspect is the museum exhibit. So here we have an exhibit about all the, the main objects that have been found at Ribet Kayafa. They were on exhibit in Babylon Museum, Jerusalem. I think I caught that just before it left. It's gone touring now, hasn't it? But what happens is that this uh, exhibit was sent now to Washington, Washington, D.C. You know, in last month they, they uh, uh, celebrated the opening of a new museum, Museum of the Bible, in, in Washington, D.C. Really? Yeah, it was, uh, it was it's a private museum and they spent about uh, $500 million to buy the land and to build it and to organize the exhibit. And one of the exhibits in this museum is my excavation of Hibet Kayafa in the valley of David in Goliath. It's going to be there for half a year. So a lot of what you're saying is, um, is in a sense, towards a question of what, like, what things were like then. When you talk about communicating with the public, what sort of messages do you try and get across? You know, when you excavate something in archaeology, if you excavate a Roman camp, a camp of the Roman army somewhere, you know, in Israel or maybe in other parts of the Mediterranean. So you have, you know, a few hundred people that have interest in Roman military uh, aspect and they will be interested in the excavation of this specific place. But when you are dealing with King David, you have millions <coughs> and ten millions of people that have interest because it's the biblical tradition and it's also the New Testament, so it's also important to Christian. So, you know, it's something that immediately has great interest to millions and ten millions and hundreds of millions of people all over the world. So it's also my responsibility to communicate not only with the archaeologists, but also with the general public. And this is why we organize this exhibit. It's taking a lot of time to organize exhibits. Sure. And what sort of response have you had from the public? <coughs> what are the responsibilities? No, what, what sort of response from the public? Oh, response. And also the turning the, the place to be a, a national park. Now we have plans how to organize when the public will come in, go out, you know, how things will be organized. Just now, Hebert Cafe is not a, 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 a national park. It's there in the mountains. If people know where it is, they can go. But you don't have anything, you know, well organized. Mm -hmm. So uh, it will be part of, the, part of the responsibilities also to make it a national park. And people will be able to come to the site, visit and see what it's all about. Sure. And the response from the public are uh, <coughs> very positive. The popular books that I published, they sold more than 8,000 copies. And for Israel, you know, in Hebrew, even 1,000 is, is a large number of books. Sure. And having uh, more than 8,000 books sold on a book on archaeology is uh, quite exceptional. Yeah, it is. Congratulations. Thank you. So many people read the book and write me, or when I'm, visit, when I'm going to Hibet Kayafa with Fred or with the television or news or report, always I see people there and people come to me and start talking with me about uh, the site. That must be really special. It's nice, huh? Uh, I, I've been, I was reading in preparation for this because archaeology really is not my field. So what is your field? Uh, my field is asking questions. Oh dear. And I wanted to ask you a question uh, about the, the importance of copper mines in the region. So I found this as a sort of fascinating um, step into the sort of um, the entirely different way that people conceived of the world 3,000 years ago as opposed to how we do now. 
So um, when I was reading about this, something that I found again and again was that the, was that copper mines were like at the center of, of military and political policy. Could you explain that a bit? Okay, when you're looking at uh, the economy in antiquity, you don't have canyons and supermarket and internet. Most of the people were farmers. Even in Kayafa, 95% of the people, I think, were farmers. They simply wake up in the morning, they went down to the fields, they cultivated the land, and they created the food that they were eating. Mm-hmm. And then on top of this, you know, some 10% maybe of the, the crops went, you know, as tax to the kingdom. And the kingdom can use the tax as salaries to priests and military men and administra- administrators and things like this. But most of the economy was made on a very simple level. But there were some things that you need to import. And metal, for example, is very important. Because with metal, you make your working tools. And with metal, you make the fighting tools. Okay, axe and spearhead and arrowheads were made from bronze. And later from iron. So access to metal was very, very important. Like today, what is more important for a country than to have, you know, tanks and uh, aircraft and helicopters, you know, and cannons. Mm-hmm. So civilizations used to invest enormous amount of uh, resources in obtaining uh, military equipment. And in antiquity, most of the military equipment, or the imported military equipment, is made from metal. And now the question, from where do you get metals? The Canaanite, for example, they got their uh, copper from Cyprus. In the late Bronze Age, in the Canaanite era, we have a lot of uh, production activity in Cyprus, and then we also have sunken ships that are drawn in the Mediterranean, and when an underwater archaeologist excavating a ship like this, they can find something sometimes up to eight tons, seven, eight tons of copper ingots. Wow. So Cyprus was the main supplier of copper in the Bronze Age. But then in the 10th century BC, we see that a new area starts to develop copper mines. And this is here in the Levant, in Jordan and Israel. In Jordan, near Petra, in a place called Fonon, Fenan, you see in the, in the 10th century, 9th century, huge production of copper. And the same in Timna, near Elat. And the big question is, if there was no kingdoms in the 10th century, no special activities, why suddenly people start producing enormous amount of copper in the region. You are not going to eat the copper. Right. So people produce the copper because somebody wants to buy it. Okay, so if you have, if you have suddenly in the early 10th century and the 10th century, 9th century, enormous production of copper, mm-hmm. and this is done in desert areas, it's done only because there is some centers who want to buy it, who need it. And who need the copper? If not King David and the kingdom of, of Solomon. This they is, need copper. This is in like the... This is in the 10th... Let me see if I understand this correctly. Ten, so in the 10th century BC, you, you start having... You have huge copper production in Timna in the north. In Timna in, in the south. In Timna in Funon in Jordan, yes. And that... Oh, sorry. Timna in the south. And... and that doesn't make sense unless there's a strong centralized government who's willing to buy it. Is that, is that correct? Or even the urban society that need it, yeah? Somebody need to buy it. Otherwise, they will not produce it. Right. 
Why people produce copper suddenly in the desert area? They don't need it for themselves. You can say that the local Bedouin who lived in the area produced the copper. So why didn't they produce copper in the 11th century or the 12th century? Why is it suddenly in the 10th century producing it? Because somebody can buy it. Somebody wants to buy it. Somebody can pay for it. Somebody is ready to organize caravans that will go maybe 10 days in the desert to bring it some to, the, to the markets. Right. So where is the market? This is indirect evidence. You know, what's happened in the past? People said, look, you have no evidence about King David. We don't know about any special activity in the 10th century. So there was no David. Right, okay. Now what's happened? We see a lot of activities. And it's all very fresh information. It's all has been accumulated in the last 10 years or so, or 15 years. Suddenly we have Hibet Kayafa with a lot of information about the, the early 10th century BC. There's another site called Hibet Arai where I'm going to excavate this January. And we have another site from the same period. So today we have two sites from the time of King David in the kingdom of Judah. With the, and then in the desert area, suddenly in the early 10th century, there is a beginning of huge copper production. So why it happened in the desert? And it's not reasonable to, to say it might have been sold to Egypt, say? Egypt is not strong in this area. In Egypt's going through a period of decline. <coughs> Egypt is a, a different story. Okay. So you can see that people cannot say to anymore that nothing is known about the 10th century because we have revolutionary discoveries in the last 10 years. This is the important thing. So people can say, okay, it's not related to David. So to whom it's relating? And you have a story about David creating a kingdom in this era. And in the same era, you have all this development. They are not connected with each other. It's not the most simple explanation. Wow. All right. Um, yeah, it, it sounds like, are you, are you getting, I mean, these are obviously, these are very big ideas. They sound very compelling when you put them that way, that you have the story saying exactly when the kingdom is sort of forged out of the tribes. And at the same time, you have all this archaeological evidence for a sudden rise in the, the harvesting of copper and the building of fortresses, fortress cities like uh, Kirbet Kayafa. Um, is, that, that, is that part but, of a broader picture for you? But you need to understand that archaeology has its own limitations. Mm -hmm. Can I go to Paris and start excavating and find Napoleon? <laughs> Probably not. Can I go to Tel Aviv, start excavating and find David Ben-Gurion? Not without some uh, people asking a lot of very uh, pointed questions. You know, but archaeology cannot find a person. You cannot, yeah. It's not possible for archaeology to find King David or King Solomon. It's not possible. We cannot excavate and find one person. We can find historical processes. Mm -hmm. And according to the biblical tradition, what do you have? First you have a tribal community in the time of the judges, and then it became an urban community in the time of David. Now what do we have in archaeology? In the 12th and 11th century BC, we have tribal communities in the hill country. And then in the 10th century, we see the beginning of urbanism and the beginning of a kingdom. So the archaeology in the Bible are going very nicely, one with the other. Both of them giving the same picture. Wow. But now I can say, well, but archaeology cannot prove that it's David. Okay, so what, you want to make it an, an anonymous king? We don't know who he was, who made all this development. And the Bible just telling you in, uh, about David in the same time, in the same era. And this is just a coincidence. It's ridiculous. 
And anyhow, this is ancient history. We don't have better way to work. We have the biblical tradition, we have the archaeological data, and all we can do is to see if it's fit or doesn't fit. Sometimes it doesn't. So when it doesn't, it doesn't. But when it fits, I think that it's showing you that the biblical tradition can be used as accurate historical uh, uh, information. So let's move now from, from David to his son, Solomon. And while, David, uh, while David's time, you see these Kibbut Kiafa, especially what you're, what you're digging, a lot of Solomon's rule is centered around the city, around Jerusalem. What, and you've recently um, published uh, a book for the public on Solomon, his palace, his temple. Mm-hmm. What, to what extent do the um, biblical and archaeological narratives mesh with Solomon? The problem is that in Jerusalem, we don't really have clear evidence from the time of Solomon. Even there is a part of the city that was declared as maybe Solomon's city would. But maybe it's not good enough. We need hard you know, evidence. We need olive pits. Exactly. And in Jerusalem, we don't have olive pits in the time of the 10th century BC because the city has not been destroyed. Once Jerusalem was built, it lasted till the Babylonian destruction. Only when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem at uh, 786 BC, only then you have a clear destruction level in Jerusalem. And during the 10th, the 9th, the 8th, and the 7th century BC, Jerusalem continued, you know, without any destruction. This was very good to the people who lived in Jerusalem, but it's very bad for the archaeologists. Because if we don't have destruction level, we cannot date the things very well. So what can we... So, so Jerusalem we is problematic. And then people came, came again, look, we know nothing about David, we know nothing about Solomon. So all the description of royal architecture in the 10th century BC in Jerusalem is a legend. And you cannot trust it as historical memories. Now what's happened in Hebed Kayafa? We discovered one object, which was a stone box but it's in the shape of a house, the shape, the shape of a building. It's 35 centimeters tall, 20 centimeters wide, and it has special decoration on it. And here I have an example of it. You can see it here in this book. This is the box of stone, you see? Oh, wow. It's an imitation of a building. Sure. You see the entrance, and you see one recess, frame, another recess frame, and a third recess frame. So I'm just going to describe this for those listening along. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's a rectangular stone object, and it's, um, it's, it's sort of made in a way, uh, almost, it, it almost looks it's like a you're box. looking it's at a... It's hollow inside. Right. And it looks like you're looking at a, a stadium, a rectangular stadium from above. It has rows of seats, um, and, it's, and the ingress is sort of ingressing inwards, and there's, a, there's some decoration coming down from the top. And divided to three, you see, three, 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 three. Sets of three. This, I mean, instinctively I would say this looks a lot like, this brings to mind very quickly the Temple of Solomon. Not really, exactly, but what do you have here is, you have an, a, a, a model of a building. Sure. This is a structure, a miniature structure. Okay. Now, when you read the biblical tradition about Solomon Palace, they have a, a description about Tzlaot. And they said, Atzlaot asher al ha'amudim arba'im v'chamisha chamisha asar hatur. There is something which called Tzlaot. And there are above pillars. So if you have a building, you have pillars. If you have something above the pillars, it's near the roof. Mm-hmm. 
And then the biblical texts say they are organized, for, they are, for, they are 45, 45, 15 in a row. But the question is, what is organized 45, 15 in a row? The tzlaot or the pillars? Mm -hmm. And so far, biblical scholars understood that the pillars are organized in three rows, and there was 15 pillars in each one of them. And it was 45 altogether. This was the original understanding. Was that the way people understand the text? But was it really this tzlaot? Nobody understands what is the tzlaot. Then if you go to Ezekiel, Prophet Ezekiel, when he described the temple, this is 400 years later, he talked about the tzlaot, and he said, that tzlaot, tzela el tzela, shalosh. Rib to, and the ribs, rib, tzela, tzlaot is ribs, mm -hmm. and then the ribs, rib to rib, three together. Um. Now, if you go back to the biblical tradition about Solomon Palace, and you see what is organized 45, 15 in a row, if you divide 45 by 15, how much, how many you get? Three. And it's also in Ezekiel, in Ezekiel also you have the name three. And here in Kayafa we have three. So we said that the Tzlaot are the roof beams, the beams of the roof, that were organized three together, three together, three together. What we are doing is linguistic analysis of the biblical text about Solomon Palace and Solomon Temple. This is royal architecture in Jerusalem in the 10th century BC. And the question is, is this description describe real architecture in the 10th century or not? Mm -hmm. This is the question. And this model is from the 10th century. It is dated by Rhydocarbon to the early 10th century. And this is in Judah, not in Cyprus and not in Egypt. It was found in Hibet Kayafa. 30 kilometers from Jerusalem. Wow. And here we can see that this type of royal architecture with wooden beams organized three together and then another group of three together then another group is already appearing here on these stone models. Okay, this is one aspect. The second aspect is this, the recess opening. You see that we have three recess in one side, three recess on the other side, and three recess on the other side. If you go to the description of Solomon, Palace. What are they saying about the entrance? They're saying Shkufim Shlosha Turim Umechze El Mechze Shalosh Peamim. What is Shkufim Shlosha Turim Umechze El Mechze Shalosh Peamim? You are not a great Hebrew speaker, I can understand, and you don't understand the text. But every Israeli in the street will not understand it. It's so complicated, nobody understands here. It's lost its meaning because these are technical terms. And after 3,000 years, you don't understand them anymore. Right. But what is shkufim? So saying there are three shkufim. Shkufim, shlosha, turim. Now what is shkufim? There is a synagogue in Galilee, in Baham, from the Byzantine period. And the main entrance to the synagogue is a huge mashkof, a huge lintel above the entrance. And you know it says an inscription on it. And what is written on the inscription? Hashakof Azim. Asa Yossi ben Levi Halevi. So you know, Hashakof Azim, on the stone, on the lintel, it's written, this lintel, this Shakof was made by so and so. So what is Shlosha Shkufim? What is Shkufim? These are the lintel, these are the three. Shkufim Shlosha Turim. You see three lines of these Mashkufim, of these lintels here. And Mechzel Mechzel Shalosh Pamim. And you see it three times. So you see it from side to side three times. And this is the way we understand that 
the biblical text describes recess opening to the palace of Solomon. And the recesses are organized in three rows. This is about the palace. But what is written about the temple? You know, the temple is built from three parts. Ulam, Hechal, Dvir. What is the description of the doorway between the Ulam and the Hechal? Sorry, could you translate those terms, please? Ulam is like a hole? <coughs> ulam, Hechal, Dvir. Ulam is forecourt, mm-hmm. and Hechal is the, the main part of the building, and the Dvir is Holy of Holies. Okay. So you got the courtyard, then you got the main hall, and then you and had the, the Holy of Holies. Holies. And when the Bible describes the entrance from the court, forecourt, into the main building, what, how the entrance is described? Mezuzot revit. What is mezuzah? The side post of the door is four. But what for? And then he described the entrance into the Holy of Holies. And what he say? Mezuzot chamishit. Which means the entrance has four something, and then the entrance to the Holy of Holies has five something, five mezuzot. And if this is the type of architecture with recess opening, you can understand or you can interpret the biblical you can interpret the biblical tradition as a very nice building, and the entrance is emphasized by four frames and inside with five frames. Right. Now if you put everything together, how many recess openings were in the main entrance to Solomon Palace? Three. How many recess openings were in the entrance to the temple? Four. And how many recess openings to the Holy of Holies? Five. So you see that they have a special language, architectural language, that emphasized the importance of an entrance according to the number of recess around the opening. Wow. So this one here, this is... <laughs> this enables us to, to suggest this understanding of the text. Okay. Because we discovered, you know, recess opening here, and we discovered roof beams organized together. And from this building, <laughs> you can have a better understanding of Solomon Temple. Well, for the people listening along at home, I, I'm sure this is... Uh, confusing, but I'm looking at now at this model that you've uh, dug up at Kirbet Kiafa, and it really is remarkable how um, how the the model here does seem to go with the description. So, so the know, by the way, yeah. the same things are described in which in uh, the Talmud, in the Mishnah and the Talmud, in uh, Masechet Midot, which described the second temple, which was built by Herod. They describe the same thing. The, the, they describe the, the entrance to the temple was built with meltraot shel milah, which means beams of uh, oak. And it says that the first one has a special size, and then the above it, it was wider by one amah to both sides, and then the other one, both amah, five times. Oh, so five it's times clearly it describing this process then. So again, it described the same type of, of architecture. So in the, in the Talmud, which is a, a later text, but, but still quite old, it's... it's but the it described the second temple. This. It described the second temple, right, not the first temple. I understand that, but this, the description about the second temple is explicit in a way that the, the description about the first temple is a bit difficult to understand. But according to the description of the second temple, at least this model looks very much like it's describing the same process. And in this book that you see here, we are talking about all these uh, aspects. If someone wants to get 
Yeah, uh, all the material spot. is beautiful. You can buy it with Amazon, I believe. It's called, uh, this is the Hebrew one, but the English one is called the uh, Salomon Palace and Temple in Light of New Archaeological Discoveries. And then you can see this model and also look at our analysis. It's appearing in monument in Mesopotamia already much earlier. Thousands of years before Salomon, they already have this recess opening. You can see the plan of temples in Mesopotamia. Oh, wow. And here you can see this is a famous king, uh, Gudea of Lagash, and he, this is a plan of a temple that he has on his uh, knee, you see. Okay, so for people, who, recess opening. for people who are listening at home, could I just quickly describe sure. what this recess opening is? Uh, it's, it's sort of, um, imagine a thick wall, and then you have uh, a door going into it, a doorway going through it, and as, the, as you get closer to the outside, the doorway expands in steps, and the number of steps by which the doorway expands uh, signifies in this sort of language, in a sense, what, how important the building is. So Solomon's palace had three and then Solomon's temple, according to this reading, had uh, four in the main hall and then five in the Holy of Holies. And each of those. This is the biblical tradition. They said Mezuzot Revi'it, and then Mezuzot Hamishit. Incredible. And some people didn't understand. There was a debate about what is exactly Mezuzah, you know. Till today, you have a Mezuzah mm-hmm. on the side. But in biblical time, Mezuzah is not the small object, it's the whole side of the entrance. So, what it means that the Mezuzah is four. They didn't build four mezuzot, but because they have only one side. So what is really four here? And there was debate in literature. Some people saw that it's like this recess opening, but other scholars didn't accept this interpretation. But I think that today, after we have the model from Hebrew Kayafa, which is from the 10th century in Judah, mm-hmm. and you have the biblical tradition, which is this, describes royal architecture in the same place at the same time, you cannot ignore it. That's incredible. So, so then, if we if we understand these mezuzot and as as these door recesses, which door, seems very reasonable, door, yeah. then um, what we're finding is in this city that you've dug up, that's been carbon dated to the 10th century BC, we have a model in it which very closely matches the description, the biblical description of King Solomon's palace. I'm not saying that this is a replica of the temple. The temple was in Jerusalem and maybe built even a few years later. This mm-hmm. may be even earlier by one generation before the temple. But this is a concept, how royal architecture look like. Right. Okay? Like when you describe a train, what is a train? You have the locomotive in the beginning, and then you have the cabins, and people sit, and it's going from one place to another. Okay? And if you have a small model of a, a train today in Australia, and then you have a train, a real train somewhere in Africa, the one who built a train in Africa is not necessarily aware of the small train, you know, model trains that you have in, uh, in your house. But the whole concept, the whole civilization, you know, if you live in the modern world in the 19th and 20th century, this is how you build trains. Right. And this is the same idea. There is a cultural concept, how nice building, how royal building should look like. And that's why this model is built according to this pattern. And later, when Solomon building a, a temple and a palace, he built it in the same concept. Right. So the description, the biblical description, is at least it, it at least matches up how we understand palaces to have been built at the time. Exactly. Wow. You cannot say that this is imaginative text, because some people said it's nothing. It has no historical value. It's all meaningless. Right. And Herbert Kanyafa show you that the text and the the object fitting very nice 
in Judah in the 10th century. This is the closest you can get to the temple. You cannot excavate the temple mount. First of all, you have Muslim mosques there, but then it has been destroyed. Even if it was possible to excavate it, what can you find? You don't think you'd find Nothing. anything? Anyway. Well, maybe some foundations, I don't know. But you know that after the destruction of the temple, the Romans built a temple. So a Roman temple was built on the temple mount. Jupiter, right? Oh, okay. Yeah, and then the, the Muslims built the, the, the mosque. So what can be left there? It's all bedrock. Right. So even if you find something, it will be only some fragments. So I think that this is the closest one can get to the temple. Let's, let's change tack here. I want to ask you about your uh, upcoming project in uh, Kirbet Arai. Could you uh, tell us a bit about that? Where is Kirbet Arai? Uh, what is it and why is it important? Kirbet Arai is located about day walk further to the south. So if Jerusalem, you, people walk one day, they will go to Kayaf. If you walk another day, you go to Kirbet Arai. So Kirbet Arai is two days walk from the center. And uh, when we excavated Kirbet Kayafa, even we have all these beautiful things, people can ask us, or even ask us, so this is the kingdom of David, one city? Right. So the idea was to find a second site for the time of David. <coughs> and in Kirbet Arai, first of all, from surveys that were done on the surface without any excavations, we found pottery, which is exactly like the pottery found in Kirbet Kayafa. So if you have in another side the same pottery, this is an indication that it was occupied in the same period. Mm-hmm. This is how archaeologists dating site. And Sargano, who was my partner at Khirbet uh, Kayafa, also discovered the site of Khirbet Arai. And then already in 2015, we came to Khirbet Arai for one week, and we did some test pits just to see what's going on at the site. And we found a nice building with beautiful pottery and object, and it's from exactly like Hibet Kayafa, the same type of object. And Radukabu dating is exactly the same date. The olive piece sent from Hibet Arai, giving us the same date we have for Hibet Kayafa. Fantastic. So we have a second site from the time of King David. Is, and what, what are the differences between Hibet Kayafa and Hibet Arai? I don't know yet, because... <laughs> The excavations so far done at Hirbet Arai are very li- on, were done on a very limited scale. Mm-hmm. We worked three years, but the first year was only five days, the second the year was only nine days, and then the last year also only nine days. So a very limited... Uh, Wait, could you explain that? You only spent five actual days on the site during that In the first time? year, and then nine and nine, so 23 days altogether. Of actual work on the site? Yeah. Wow. Because I was busy at uh, Lachish. Right. At Lachish, we have a huge project, six weeks with 100 people every summer. And in Arai, we went just in between season, you know, and we make some probes just to learn about the site. Mm-hmm. And this year, or next year, in 2018, we are going to have a big project. And we have a cooperation with the Macquarie University from Sydney. They will come and we'll start excavating in the 28th of January for three weeks. And we're going to work with 20 or 30 people. Are you and later, in getting more help for that project? We, we would be very happy to get more help. You know, if people can volunteer to excavate with us, it will be great. Where would, where would someone uh, reach you if they wanted to help out? What's the best way to get in contact with you? They can find my email at uh, the uh, Hebrew University website and uh, write me. Fantastic. And uh, <laughs> we hope to excavate a number of seasons at Tribet Arai. And then we need to see if it was a fortified city or maybe only a village. We don't know yet. 
and also to see if we'll have a royal architecture or special uh, information or whatever. Is there a moment for you that stands out as one of those just wow, like when you've just walked into something and you, you, it's the majesty of it hits you? It's very complicated because my metaphor for archaeological work is like a mosaic floor. Mm -hmm. When you come and you see a beautiful mosaic floor, you say, wow, yeah? But what is really the mosaic floor? You have millions of small stones. Mm -hmm. Some of the stones are green, some of them are black, some of them are red, some of them are white. And only when all these thousands and thousands and ten thousands and hundred thousands of stones put together, only then you have the beautiful picture. And this is in archaeology. Every season, every day, <coughs> when we have another wall or another floor or another pottery vessel or another stone object, we're adding another stone to the picture. And only in the end, you have the beautiful picture. Even this artifact, when it was found in the excavation, it was broken. We didn't understand what it was. And later it was glued and we saw a beautiful building. But I didn't know how much uh, important it is. And then I said, well, let's see what is it. I realized that this stone object from Hebe Kayafa is the type of describing royal architecture. So I said, where, where do we have royal architecture in the biblical tradition? Solomon is building palace and temple. So I start reading the biblical text. And only then I realized, you know, that we can have better understanding of some terms which were not understood before. But it's a long process. It's not wow. Mm -hmm. It's tile by tile. Exactly. Wow. Professor Garfinkel, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you today. Sure, thank you very much. And you are welcome to join us in the excavation. <laughs> thank you very much. God bless. Thanks to Perrin Walker and Daniel Kenny. This is General Ike, Building Jerusalem.